our catechism study now. You can be seated. <clears throat> We're still on question number 36. We're spending some uh, extra time on it because it's got multiple parts. We've been looking uh, at the benefits that we have in this life in Christ and our, those who are redeemed, those who are effectually called for some time now. And I will refresh you a little bit, reminding you that the primary benefits are justification, adoption, and sanctification. Justification is our complete acceptance by God as righteous, even though we are sinners. It includes our complete pardon by the cross and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. So we're accepted through faith in him. Adoption is our reception as sons of God the Father with all the privileges that belong to sons, including an eternal inheritance in heaven with Jesus, his son, and also including access to our Father in prayer, in his care and chastisement of us as his people, his provision for us, for all that we have need of. And sanctification involves God's transformation of our lives from sin to holiness. There is a definitive sanctification that begins at conversion, the new birth, when we're changed and our direction is changed toward God. We have a great change of heart that God brings. And then there is what the Catechism speaks of, particularly progressive sanctification, where we put off the old man, put on the new man, where we die to sin, live to righteousness. And then there is glorification, which is final sanctification, where when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So there are these, and there are also these three benefits, the fundamental ones that we have in this life. And then there are also five benefits that grow out of these three. And these are listed in question 36. So let's confess this question together, the answer to this question. Question 36, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. We're now on the last of the five benefits. We've looked at them individually, and that's why we've been on question 36 for a while. The fifth benefit is actually tied to the fourth. You don't know what it's talking about unless you look at the the fourth one, because it's tied together by the word therein. It says, and perseverance therein to the end. And the question would be, wherein? perseverance in what well it's perseverance in grace because the fourth benefit is that the increase of grace the benefit that we looked at last week and perseverance therein in that grace to the end a benefit we're looking at this week so the title this week is perseverance in grace now i want to remind you what grace is what we looked at last week God's grace is God's help. 
to desperate, unworthy sinners. His help that enables us to please him. By grace, he does all that needs to be done so that we can be pleasing children in his house. He justifies us through faith, and then he works in our lives by his power so that we can please him, so that we can grow in our knowledge of him and the fruit of the Spirit and in service to him, and so that we can thrive when our faith is tried in this world, what we talked about this morning enabling us to stand in temptation. We stand by grace to escape when we have fallen. We escape by grace to keep going when we are weary. We go on by grace to settle quarrels. We do that by grace to honor him in persecution, all by grace to be faithful when we are sick and to help us when we face death. His grace does all of this. We saw that this grace, the grace that does all this, increases in this life. In other words, we're not, as I described it last week, we're not stuck with whatever grace we got when we were first converted. There was a whole lot of grace there to convert us, but I'm glad that that's not all. He continues to increase his help to us, his grace, more and more as we go on. But now the question that we would wonder about, okay, there's increase of grace, but um, can we be sure that this grace will continue to come to us? What if God turned off the grace and ceased to, to bring it to us? We saw last week that if we are proud, then the Lord will resist us instead of giving grace to us. He, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we saw that that would cause problems in our in our progress, because we're resisting the grace of God. We could illustrate this with Peter when he denied the Lord. He was proud and said that he would never deny the Lord. And so God resisted him rather than giving him grace. When the trial came, he didn't have grace to stand. And without grace to stand, he fell. And he denied the Lord Jesus three times. But then afterward, grace came to him and restored him. And in fact, Jesus told him before the fall that though he would fall, he had prayed for him that his faith would not fail. In other words, Peter would go on as a true believer in Christ. His sin would be a temporary lapse rather than a complete rejection of his Lord. The root or seed of faith would remain in Peter. So Peter persevered in the grace of God. But will we? Judas did not persevere. He fell completely away. So can we say that all who are effectually called, like we just confessed in the catechism, will persevere in grace? Can that teaching of our catechism be defended from Scripture? Or is this just something that is wishful thinking that our catechism is asserting here? What do we do with Judas and those like Judas that come for a while and then completely fall away? We're told Judas is even the son of perdition. Will God keep us in the pathway of his saving help? Or can we so harden ourselves that we will fall from grace. 
Let's turn to the scripture. Our reading about this is from the first epistle of John, chapter 2. 1 John 2, 18 through 29. Please give attention to the word of God. 1 John 2, 18 is the starting point. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true, it is not a lie, And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There we end the reading of God's word. May he bless the word to us. This whole doctrine of perseverance, when I was a new Christian, this is one that I wasn't able to settle for a long, long time. I was in a Baptist church that, uh, or Baptist, Baptist type church that taught that uh, there was, that, that once you were saved, you were always saved, but they didn't really teach perseverance. So, it, because they taught that a person could fall away, but because they had received Christ in their heart, then they would still be saved at the end, was the kind of thing. That was taught, and uh, I read in the scripture where it said that if people fall away, then they would, you know, the, the people fall away and perish. So it was very, uh, it was very confusing to me in trying to sort that out and really what the scripture said. One of the reasons that um, I'm in the place where I am in my theology is because I never took things just at face value in the different churches I was, and I always had to search it out and see what the scripture said. And so for a long time, I didn't accept what was, what was taught completely. I just said I didn't know because I could see the passages that said that if we had, had been saved, we would continue in the, in, in the faith. But then I saw these other ones that said that people departed. And so it was, it was, it was confusing to me until uh, some years later. So we want to look at this subject today. Because here is, I'll show you first, the troubling reality described by John that that we have to face in Scripture, it's all through Scripture, that people do fall from grace in a way. Grace, of course, is a term that can be used in different ways and has different uh, latitude uh, in, in how it's used. But there's a sense in which people fall away. 
Uh, John speaks of many who had done this in verse 18 and 19. He refers to false teachers in particular, that, teachers that he calls antichrists. Now, anti and antichrist can mean either against Christ or it can mean in place of Christ and uh, those that would try to take his place. And I think probably here in 1 John chapter 2, it refers to those who were against Christ. I think in other places, it refers to those who sit in the place of Christ. So when John says that their appearance is a sign that it is the last hour, he may be speaking of the end of the Jewish age when the temple would be destroyed, or he may be speaking of the end that is yet future to us and simply meaning that Jesus could come at any time. We are in the last hour or the last age before Jesus comes. So it's the last hour in that way. It was also the last hour of the Jewish uh, time that was brought to an end in 70 AD definitively. Um, It's hard to know for sure. It doesn't really matter. You can see clearly here that John refers to these false teachers, the point that we are concerned with, as those who had been part of their Christian fellowship. He describes them in verse 19 as those who have gone out from us. So in some way, they had been part of the church and now they have departed. They had been partakers of the ministry of the word, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all the things that go on in a church. According to verse 22, they were now even denying Jesus as the Christ. It's disturbing to see this kind of thing, even as we see it in Scripture. Here were men that had served in the church, men that they had trusted, men that had been duly ordained and brought into the ministry. How it must have broken their hearts to see them denying the Lord who bought them, as Peter put it in 2 Peter 2. There's a sense in which he bought the whole church and they were part of it. It must have unsettled them to to hear this and to see this. We ourselves have been troubled by such things, have we not? How grieved we have been to see those who partook of the Lord's Supper with us and sang the praises of God with us and confessed faith in Jesus Christ with us and took vows of allegiance to him with us now rejecting that and departing from Jesus and refusing to repent. We had to remove um, Colton just this past year from our church who had done all of those things. How hard it is to suspend these, these individuals from the Lord's Supper and then at last to expel them from the church knowing that they will be condemned if they do not repent and we're declaring it to be so. How can one who professed faith and was baptized and confessed the things that we confess now be outside with condemnation marked upon his head? It's also disturbing even more perhaps when those who once taught the truth fall away. Recently, there was disturbing allegations about a a Christian apologist. I don't want to name The name, some of you have heard of it, but I don't want to name the name because I think that when things come after the fact and the individual can't uh, speak to the situation, that they have to be reserved until things are absolutely clear. 
But a few years ago, we know in our presbytery, there was a matter that was absolutely clear. We were troubled to receive official reports from Australia that a minister that had been in our company, uh, David Ells, used to minister the gospel down in New Brunswick, that he had been deposed from his office in Australia officially by his presbytery who had found him in sin and that he was refusing to repent. Now, I'm happy to report to you that a couple of years ago, I've told most of you this, I think, but I I actually looked him up. I often look up people that have departed and find out what they're doing and what's up with them. And when I called him, he said that he had repented and that he was restored in the church again. So I was very, very happy to hear that. And uh, yet it's a very troubling thing. We know that there are some who, who turn away and who never come back. How troubling it was for the disciples of Jesus then in Jesus' day to see the apostasy of Judas. Can you imagine? They walked with Judas. They had close company with him for the years that they were with Jesus, two or three years ministering with him, and to have him come on that night that we recently read of and betray the Lord Jesus with a kiss. To see the one that had eaten bread with them that very night lift up his heel against the Lord. How hard it must have been for the Samaritan converts to see Simon Magnus confess the Lord and be baptized, and then only to reject him later on that very, that very time. Very unsettling. How do you know then that it will not happen to you? I remember when my, daughter, my oldest daughters were young, and they were you know young, maybe high school age, junior high, something like that. And they had some friends that they knew that had turned away from the Lord. And they said, how, how do I know if that will happen to me? It was concerning. The scripture warns us about falling away. It warns about it, not in rare times, but over and over again, it warns us. Many of the parables that Jesus told warned about this. In the parable of the sower. There were the souls that received the seed of the gospel. They all received the seed of the gospel, except the first one that was on the, 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 the path. And yet, because, then because of persecution on the one hand, and because of the cares of the world and the enticements of the world on the other hand, some of them turned away. In the parable of the dragnet, there are those who are swept up in the gospel net, in the call of the gospel, who are found to be false on the day of judgment, the last day, and they're cast out. We know the words of Jesus that he tells us in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, depart from me, for I never knew you. And in the parable of the ten virgins, there are only five that are true when the bridegroom comes. Jesus gives direct warnings like this one in Luke twenty-one thirty-four, but take heed to yourselves, says to his own disciples, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come on you unexpectedly. So it happened in a sense with those virgins. In Galatians 5, 4, Paul actually tells the Galatians to whom he himself had introduced the gospel that if they turn to legalism, 
they have what? Fallen from grace. That's what we're talking about here. He says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And then there is the book to the Hebrews, which is sometimes called the epistle of warning. I could give you more than just these quotes too, but it has warnings like this one in Hebrews 3.12, addressed to note the brethren in the church, to the brothers and sisters. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And in the context, he talks about how that happened to people in the Old Testament, that they fell in the wilderness because God was not pleased with them, and that this same thing will happen to many of you. It's a warning not to those who are outside the church, but a warning to the brethren who are inside the church. See also Hebrews 10.28, where breaking the law of Moses is compared to rejecting Christ in the New Testament. Anyone, it says, who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. There's a terrifying warning there. When I was a new believer, I stayed awake for several nights, distressed over reading that. And what does this mean? And how do I know? Have I uh, sinned in such a way as to insult the Spirit of grace and to to fall away from grace somehow. I talked to some people that were in a particular sect that, were, that, that had uh, suggested that. This terrifying warning. What was interesting is they said you could come back and this passage seemed to say that you couldn't. We could find many other similar warnings in Peter, in Revelation, and in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy, Moses lays out the blessings for those who keep the covenant and the curses for those who break the covenant. And here again, it's not blessings for people that are in the covenant and curses for people that are outside the covenant. It's blessings for people in the covenant and curses for people in the covenant. Both are in the covenant. So it's important to realize who is being addressed. These warnings, again, are terrifying. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How can we know that we will not fall from grace with all of these warnings and all of these examples? How can the catechism say that perseverance and grace is one of the benefits we have if we have been effectually called? How can it say this when there are clearly people who fall away? from grace in the way that the Apostle Paul describes. The Apostle John is a pastor, and he is mindful of the trouble that the apostasy of these antichrists, these many antichrists, would bring to the souls of the believers he's writing to. So, he clearly addresses this matter 
with some comforting words. John shows us, this is the next thing I want to look at, John shows us with certainty that those who are truly in Christ will not fall away from the faith. They will most certainly persevere in grace. John explains something crucial to the discussion here, that the departing ones were never truly of us. They were of us in one way, in an outward way, is those who appeared to be true believers, but they were never truly of us when it came to having true saving faith. Jesus talks about those who are his disciples and turn away, and those who are his disciples indeed, and who do not turn away. So he makes a distinction. You can see this in verse 19, where he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. In the original, interestingly, the words from us and the words of us are exactly the same words. So that we could reflect that similarity by translating it like this. They went out of us, but they were not of us. Okay, they, they went out from us, they were, they, but they were not of us. Yeah, so, so out of us and not of us. In other words, they were not of us, but not of us, or they were of us and not of us at the same time. (laughs) Of us in an outward way, not of us in a genuine saving way. You might say of such a person, he never was one of us, even though he had every appearance of being so. None of the disciples expected Judas, who was, they would say, of us, and he was of them until he came to betray Jesus in the garden with his wretched kiss. And in case anyone missed the point, John stresses that their departing makes it clear. It manifests the fact that they were not really ever of us. He uses the same phrase, of us, two more times, along with the words, with us, one time, in explaining this in the rest of verse 19. He says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So do you see what he's saying here? He is saying that those who fall away were never really and truly in Christ. They were never really his people. They had an unbelieving heart, a heart of unbelief that was warned about in Hebrews all along. They said they believed. They even conformed their life to God's commandments in various ways. But when it came to really receiving and resting upon Christ for their salvation, this they did not do. I remember the first time when I read, when I was struggling with this whole issue, and I read about saints and all the letters that are addressed to saints, and then they're warned about falling away. And I said, well, they're saints. How can they be addressed that way? And came to understand that a saint as someone that's set apart to God. And if you're in the church and you've professed your faith, you're a saint, you're set apart to God. You may not be a real believer. You might be lying. You may have, made, you may have been a, hypo, a hypocrite when you took your vows. But you're set apart and you're a saint. So a saint can fall away in that way. So when we talk about perseverance of the saints, yes, we're talking about those who are really saints. 
not those who profess to be. But you see, in a sense, they are all really saints. So we have to understand that there's different layers of looking at this. That's what's confusing about it. But it's really pretty clear after you look at the whole picture. So true believers, what we see then from John here, is that true believers are fundamentally different in their character from those who fall away in their spiritual state. They're fundamentally different. What a relief it is to see that though they look the same, they are not the same. As a true believer, if you are such, you are different because you have an anointing from the Holy One. This is what is different about you from those that end up departing from the faith. You can see how John contrasts this with those who departed in verse 20. In verse 19, after explaining that none of the ones who went out from us were of us, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. So he's addressing real believers there. That's how you're different. But you, you're different. You have an anointing from the Holy One. What does it mean to have an anointing from the Holy One? Well, the word anointing is chrisma. So it's like the word Christ, of course. You may remember that the word Christ, the title Christ, means Messiah, Old Testament name, or the anointed one. Jesus is called the Christ because he came in the flesh. When he came in the flesh, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to him in such a way that he could pour out the Holy Spirit on the church, on all of his people. John the Baptist presented him as one who would baptize us all with the Holy Spirit. And you remember how Jesus told his disciples after he was resurrected that he would pour out his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on them. And how in Acts 2 we read that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all who called on the name of the Lord and their children. So anointing is given to us in the Holy Spirit. But John is talking about here what we might call an effectual anointing that distinguishes them from those who merely have gifts. You remember how the Holy Spirit effectually calls us? What we studied before? Jesus told his disciples that when he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit who would convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you remember what we learned about effectual calling in question 21 of the Shorter Catechism? Effectual calling is a work of who? A work of God's Spirit. Whereby, what does He do? Convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, fully offered to us in the gospel. You see what that's saying? The Spirit, when He anoints us effectually, the Spirit brings real conviction to you that you are a sinner who is in trouble with God, a sinner who will go to hell without Christ. And the Spirit enlightens your mind about Christ. He shows you who Jesus really is, that He really died on the cross, that He went there to be punished for His people's sins, and that God accepted His sacrifice for them. You see and are convinced that Christ is sufficient as Savior. And then the Spirit renews your will. He repairs your will so that you want 
what you ought to want. So that you want to be saved from your sin by Christ. So that you want to come to Him and to be His disciple. So that you repent. So that you believe. Or as the Catechism puts it, so that you embrace Jesus Christ as He is freely offered to us in the Gospel. John makes it clear that the anointing causes you to know the truth about Jesus. So that you're different than the antichrists who now deny the truth about Jesus. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you are in the know about Jesus. Once the Spirit convinces you about the gospel, you really can't deny it. I mean, you can have doubts in a way. You know, the devil can tempt you and you can say, I wonder if this is even all true in a time of struggle and such things like that. But once you get the gospel, you can't say, you know, I've been thinking about all this and I really don't think Jesus is the only way. I mean, if there are good people who follow other religions, I think God will accept them too. You can't go there. If you once know the gospel, it just doesn't work if you really know the gospel. If you say that, you don't understand. You never understood. You couldn't understand what it means for Jesus to bear the curse for his people. You don't get it. The Holy Spirit has not shown you how desperately you need him if you should entertain the idea that, oh, that person is a pretty good person, so they probably could be saved too without Jesus. That doesn't work. It's It's impossible. You're not, if, if you have that kind of thought, you're, you've never been anointed ineffectually by the Holy Spirit. You're, you're not in the know about the gospel. So you could, yeah, you could deny it and go out and go, in, oh, Jesus, maybe he's not God or whatever. You could go all over the place. You can see how John elaborates on this in verses 21 through 23. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. John is writing to believers, and they know the truth because they have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has brought it home to them so that they cannot deny it the way the ones who departed had denied it. Look at verse 22 and 23. It goes on to explain the contrast even more. It says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. This is why I'm saying I don't think this was one that's pretending to be Christ, but he's actually denying against Christ. Uh, Verse 23, he says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So he might summarize this by saying that the difference between those who eventually reject Christ and those who continue to believe is that those who reject him were never taught by the Holy Spirit. They were never effectually called. And that's the ones that the, the catechism is speaking about, those who are effectually called. They never really saw that they were sinners, and they were never really enlightened about what Jesus did, so as to trust him in truth. John explains that those who receive the gospel will not fall away. Once the gospel that you first heard is in you 
In other words, like James spoke about the implanted word that is able to save your souls. Once it's part of you, it's part of your, your whole thinking of your belief. Then once it comes to abide in you, you will abide in the Father and the Son. Remain, abide, stay in. You, that, that truth stays in you. The Spirit stays in you. So you stay. John says, verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. The gospel you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, okay, it really dwells in you, like you factually you, you really believe, then you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Two always go together. The gospel's living in you, then you're living in the Son and the Father. You're not going to go away. The gospel cannot be separated from the Father and the Son. You can't have the gospel and not have the Father and the Son. And the promise to you who receive the gospel is not temporary life. It's eternal life. And this is the promise, verse 25. That he has promised us eternal life. The Lord tells us repeatedly in the scripture that if we believe on Jesus, we are given eternal life. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has what? Temporary life? Life for a while? No, eternal life. It's an eternal life is eternal. It doesn't go away. It's not something that you can lose. Now, this all goes back to the anointing that taught you the gospel in the first place. Because the anointing with the Holy Spirit that taught you the gospel is permanent. Okay, the Spirit anointed you. He, he, he stays with you. It's a permanent thing. Then that same anointing continues to teach you the truth as you go along. The anointing, the the the. Baptism of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit as your instructor, as your counselor, as the one who convicts you of your sin, the one who shows you Christ. He doesn't go away. The anointing doesn't doesn't skip town. Even though people try, they cannot deceive you because you have the Spirit remaining in you who is always there to teach you and bring you around to the truth. Verse 26 and 27 say, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. It stays in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Once the Spirit has truly revealed the truth to you, you can't just not believe it because the Holy Spirit who is with you stays in you and to teach you. Where the Spirit remains, the truth remains. You don't need anyone to teach you the truth of the gospel because the anointing teaches you. You have the Spirit there to keep on teaching you and to keep on convincing you of the truth and He will prevail. You see the truth, you can't deny it the way false teachers do. So, 
you see that there are two kinds of people who profess Christ in the church. Those who have been effectually called by the anointing, who will never reject Jesus, and those who profess to believe, but are only called by the words, who will either reject him in this life or have their hypocrisy exposed on the day of judgment at the end of the world. So what should you do in light of this teaching about persevering? That's the third thing I want to look at this afternoon. What should you do in light of the teaching about persevering that we have seen here? John tells you two things you ought to do. First, he tells you, here's that word abide again, that you ought to abide in Jesus. Verse 28, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you want to be sure that all is well with your soul, then continue believing in Jesus, living in Jesus. But why does John tell you to abide in him when he's just been telling you that those who are anointed by the Spirit will abide in him? I mean, does he really need to say that? (laughs) Is, Is it necessary? And it is. It is actually quite necessary for him to tell you that you need to abide in Christ if you want to be saved in the end. He says it, first of all, for the sake of those who do not truly believe, that they might believe. He knows that not everyone that he's writing to truly knows the Lord. There are others among them that will depart later. He knows that there are some among them that will depart and who are already thinking about departing. So he is urging them, abide in Jesus. Don't depart. Stay in him. Abide in Christ. To truly abide in him. You see, it may be that some of those that he's writing to are in that category. They're actually unbelievers and they're kind of looking at things and it's looking attractive to them to go this way or that. He says, no, 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 abide in him. He's calling them graciously to stay with Christ. Don't go away from here. Come, stay, stay in him. Perhaps they will come to be effectually called here. So he says this partly for the sake of the unbelievers in the church. But now here's an important thing. He also says this for the believers, the ones that are real believers. All of them are professing believers. But he's saying it even more for those who truly believe and are truly abiding in Christ. He says this because though they will remain in Jesus if they are truly born of the Spirit, one of the things that will keep them is the warnings about Remaining in Jesus and not departing from him. What's the difference between those who have the anointing and those who don't have the anointing when they hear the call to abide in him? The ones who don't have the anointing hear that call and the warning doesn't really hit home. They might, they might not. They're wavering, thinking what they'll do. The ones who have the anointing, maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're wrestling. It's a time when they're being tempted and enticed. They will hear that warning and it will be effectual. So they will respond to it. They'll say, if I don't abide in Christ, I'm going to perish. I can't leave him. And they will stay in him. The warning, in other words, 
works. Just as the word of God works. It is the warnings of the word. And those that have the anointing. It doesn't work in those that don't. And so God, you see, actually uses the warnings. The warnings are real because it is true of every single person that if they do not abide in Christ, then they will not be saved at the last day. It's true of them whether they're a believer or not a believer. You say, well, the believer won't depart. Yes, he won't. But the thing is, it's not that he, can t- he departs and he's still okay because he was once abiding in Christ. It's that he can't depart. He may struggle like David did and turn away or deny Christ like Peter did, but the anointing is there and he can't ultimately and utterly deny him. The Holy Spirit works very much through the ministry of the word. The Spirit will use someone coming alongside and saying, verse 27, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. So that's important. He uses real people like you to warn other people. If you see someone that's departing from Christ, you may, by warning them, be used of the effectual call of God in them by the Holy Spirit to call them back. Just as with the gospel. Isn't it true initially with the gospel? If you go out and you tell people the way of salvation and you urge them to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. If you don't, you'll perish. And if they believe, God used those words that you brought to them to effectually call them if they come to believe. Well, it's the same thing. Someone that is actually a believer that's wavering and starting to depart. You may be the one who comes to issue that warning that if you depart, you cannot be saved. And they wake up and they hear that because they do have the seed of faith. God uses us in each other's life. This is why church discipline is such an important thing. If someone goes out, we go to them, we warn them, we call them, we urge them not to depart. Therefore, what John says here is a real warning for everyone. It is absolutely true that if you do not remain in Jesus, no matter what you may have professed about him in the past, you will be ashamed when he comes. You will be judged on the day of judgment. You will be rejected. His grace was so near to you, and yet it was never embraced. You see how this works? If you're a true believer who is truly anointed by the Holy Spirit, you truly know the gospel, you know the consequences of rejecting it, you get it, you really understand the danger, so you remain, you abide. You're like the disciples who are in John 6 after Jesus fed the 5,000 and the crowd wanted to make him king in the mistaken way that they thought he should be king. They wanted him to be the guy that would come and solve all their problems and deliver them from the hand of Rome and make them prosperous in the world, make the world serve them. And when Jesus refused to comply with their, mis- their, their wishes for an immediate kingdom like that and explained that he had come to be the sacrifice by which they might have fellowship with God, they walked away, except for Jesus' disciples. And when Jesus asked them if they were going to go away too, Peter said, we can't. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The disciples had been effectually called. They had been taught by the Holy Spirit. And that is the reason they remained with Jesus. 
when so many others rejected him. 10,000 may fall at your right hand, but it will not come near you. They had been anointed with the Spirit. So John is saying here in our text that you should abide or remain in him so that when he comes to judge the world, you won't be ashamed. (laughs) You really should abide in him. You can be confident about that day when it comes if, because you're resting in Jesus, who alone can save you. You're trusting in him and what he has done. How comforting this is for you when you see people departing from Jesus, even those who are faithful teachers. You can have confidence simply in the fact that you are convinced of the gospel of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You're convinced and you're abiding in Jesus. Those who reject him were never doing that. And then there is the second thing that John says. Secondly, John says that you ought to know that whoever practices righteousness is born of God. See that in verse 29. You know, how can we know that we know? He says, if you, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born in him. So these guys, they showed in two ways that they were not really of God. They denied the truth of the gospel, they denied Christ, and they also didn't practice righteousness. Practicing righteousness is a sign, a sure sign of the new birth, that you have been made alive by God's Spirit. This is another encouragement, if you are a true believer. If you're a true believer, there you are, practicing righteousness. If you've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are living for Him now. The Spirit teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts that war against the soul, and you do. And if you're living this new life of righteousness, you know that you're born of Him. You know that God has given you life through Jesus Christ because you're practicing righteousness, and you wouldn't do that if you were not. Knowing that this is so serves as an incentive to practice righteousness. Whenever you start to waver, you realize that if you continue in disobedience, You have no grounds for the assurance that you really do belong to him. Those false teachers that had departed had no grounds for saying that they belong to Christ. And if you depart from him, you have no grounds for saying it either. But you have no reason to doubt that you are a believer if you are practicing righteousness. Think about the thing we talked about this morning with temptation. You're tempted. You're going to go and spoil your relationship with God by caving into the temptation. Or are you going to endure the temptation and not cave into it and maintain your conscience, your walk with God. If, if you cave in, you lose your assurance. You've got to repent. You've got, to, you've got no grounds for saying that, that, that you're his until you deal with it and repent and come back to him. There's, there's no solid ground for you to make that claim. So you can see what the true biblical doctrine of perseverance is. It is that once you have been effectually called, truly converted by the Holy Spirit so that you are truly resting in Jesus Christ, the Lord will keep you trusting and following him. You may have temporary lapses the way that Peter did when he denied Jesus. And when you do, you will not have grounds for your assurance that you really know him. But if you really do, the anointing will remain in you and you will be restored by his gracious working in you the way Peter was. 
The doctrine then is not that salvation is certain if we have once believed, but rather that perseverance is certain if we have truly believed. That's the key. If we truly believed, we will continue in the grace of God. Let me close with two promises from the word of God for your encouragement. First, from Jeremiah 32, 38 through 40, our Lord says of his people, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. So God not only says, I won't depart from you, but in my covenant, I will put my, uh, I will put my fear, it says here, in their hearts so they will not depart from me. Very encouraging. Second, in John 6, 37 through 40, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, one's appointed to salvation, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So you see that your confidence is not that you're okay no matter what you do once you have made some kind of Christian profession, but rather that if you have come to Jesus in true faith, you will never utterly depart from him. His grace will continue to come to you and you will persevere in his grace. Our comfort is that he who called us will keep us and that because he keeps us, we will be kept. He will, we will not depart as those do who never truly knew him. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we bless your name that this is a very encouraging teaching to know that you will preserve your people, that you will keep us to the end. We remember when Jesus was speaking about the uh, coming judgment of Jerusalem in, the, uh, in that generation, and he said that uh, if it were possible that even the elect would be deceived. But he makes it clear it's not possible for them to be deceived. We thank you, Lord, that when we have the anointing, when we have been effectually called, when we are of those that are your chosen people, that it cannot be undone, that the anointing remains and the truth that we believe on account of that anointing remains. So we pray, O Lord, that you would effectually call many, uh, all of those who are among us, Lord, that we would not only profess to believe, but that we would truly believe, that we would have such an understanding, such a conviction that, that uh, we are not just playing games here,
that we are those who are resting in Christ for our salvation. Lord, it's nothing complicated. It's not a hard thing to do. We simply fall on him for mercy. We simply cry out to him like the tax collector did. Not the one who comes and says, look at me and look at what I'm doing. But the one who simply depends wholly on Jesus Christ and comes to him for life. We thank you, Lord, for the hope and assurance that we have that you will preserve us and keep us to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song of response this afternoon. Now, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give to you the spirit of revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Amen.